Take your Bibles tonight and turn, first of all, to Genesis 3. I'll have to ask at the beginning to have patience. Uh, the main point won't be till the, toward the end. Wisdom and a well-ordered love, I want to show you how they relate together. But I'm going to spend quite a bit of time talking about biblical wisdom and how that works in contrast and conflict with the world's wisdom and put it in the context and then relate it to how that wisdom is needed to have a well-ordered love. So we're going to get there. We're just going to build toward it. Genesis 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. I want you to take note tonight, and all the texts we read, some more obvious than others, all the wisdom language that's in these texts, starting with Genesis 3.1. The serpent was more crafty, and the word crafty in the Hebrew is a word, everywhere else it's used, is a wisdom literature word. It's like translated prudent, cunning, clever, wise. It really has to say that Satan, the serpent in particular, was wise. Now, not... We're going to find out tonight why there are two different kinds of wisdom. This is obviously worldly, earthly wisdom. And it's going to be displayed in how he talks to them. So he's more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Not that they would just know it, but they would be able to be the arbiters of it. They would be the one who decided for themselves what was right and wrong. He goes on to say, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes. Notice it was a tree, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Why would Eve be looking for wisdom? What was she looking when she said she wanted the tree? What kind of wisdom? What was she after when she did that? She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, what was the serpent's tool of temptation in chapter 3? Was it power? Was it pride? In a way, those are both true. What deception did Satan use to cause humanity to reach for the fruit? Was it greed? Was it lust? Whatever it is, as we read the text, it was frightfully powerful, wasn't it? I mean, they traded off everything that they had been given by God. I mean, I look through the text again, because I've read it like you many times. Very super abundant, yes. There have been so many blessings by God. They were made in his image, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. They had been blessed by God and said, be fruitful and multiply, 128. They had been given God's attention. He would come to them in the cool of the day, chapter 2. He had been given, they had been given provision because they could eat of about just about every tree in the garden. So they had everything they wanted. 
They even had God's authority because he made them rulers, co-regents. And they were over the fowls of the air and the fish of the sea and the animals. I mean, they, were, they had authority over everyone. Adam had named things. He was in control. He had authority, God-given authority. So what was it? What was it about what Satan tempted them with that would make them want to trade all of that in? Or did they even think they were? Um, the answer is an alternate wisdom. Satan questioned whether God's way was really the best way to live in the world. The serpent gave Eve another option to have a kind of wisdom that was apart from God and his goodness. So the question, how could they choose sin over God? Well, the answer is they were offered a wisdom that they desired more than the wisdom that God gave. And in a nutshell, in some ways, that's really the definition of sin. Sin is any attempt to use an alternative wisdom to get good apart from God. And they struggled with it. And can I say thousands of years later, we still do. We still do. Um, unless you think Eve is being duped because she really wasn't intelligent and somehow the Satan... Uh, mesmerized her. It's kind of like I thought of Mowgli when he was the, remember Ka in the Jungle Book? And, and the snake's eyes are going, you know, making those things, and he's going, uh, you know. okay, that's not Eve. <laughs> She's not deceived like that. She's not like semi-conscious about what she, no, she knows exactly what's happening. She knows exactly what's going on. One commentator said, the temptation is not presented in Genesis as a general rebellion from God's authority. Rather, it's portrayed as a quest for wisdom and the good that you can get apart from God. That's what Genesis 3 is mentioned about. It's about a quest for a wisdom, an alternative wisdom, a wisdom that's different than God. I've come to learn as I study Genesis, maybe you have too, that God never told Adam and Eve that they would never eat from those two forbidden trees. He didn't tell them that they would never eat from it. What he was telling them is they couldn't eat from it right now. Because obviously, you know, at the end of the Bible, we're all going to eat from it, right? So Satan wanted to say to them, here's his wisdom. You know, let me tell you this. God is keeping something from you. And, I, and I've learned that that's the way he puts things. God, truthfully, though, was not keeping something from Adam and Eve. He was keeping something for them. And eventually, if they passed the obedience test and listened to God's word and kept his word, they could have been given access to those trees. But they weren't. They, did, they didn't pass the obedience test. Why? Because they wanted a wisdom that made them, hear me, independent of God. Satan convinced them that they would have a better life, a happier life, a more fulfilled life, if they could call the shots of what was right and wrong. That was the alternative wisdom that he gave them. And I asked myself, I read the text, if they are already made in the image of God, how is the temptation that Satan offers them that if you eat the fruit, God knows you'll be like him? How is that a temptation if they've already been made like him? And here's the key. Both the serpent and, and God offer Adam and Eve the same goal. See, God says, I made you in my image. Satan says, listen, 
you eat the fruit and do it my way, you can be like God. The problem is, is they're offering it different ways. Adam and Eve agreed with the what of God and what he was offering, the what of it, but not the how of it. Satan wanted to change the how of it. He said, yeah, God says you can be like me. But you know what? My how is better. You can take control yourself. You can act independently of God. You can call the shots about what's right and wrong. And so they started what I call the wisdom wars. The wisdom wars are what we have to do every single day to choose whose wisdom by, we will live by in this world. And often, and maybe you find yourself in this boat at times, that you say, God... I agree with you on the what, I want to be like you, but too often I find myself siding with the devil about how I'm going to do that. Example, God and Satan both offer happiness. And there's wisdom about happiness. And too often we say, hey God, I like the what. You said I offer you happiness. But you know the how of Satan seems much more enticing, more pleasurable. And he says that I could be happy and I can take the shortcut, and I don't have to do this, and instead I can do this. And he says, hey, here's how you get happy. And see, his wisdom of how you, how you get happy is way different than God's. He says you could find it at the bottom of a bottle or the end of a needle or in somebody else's bed. And see, he says, see, Satan says, let me tell you how you can be happy. And that is completely antithetical. Bipolar, opposite of what God says, because those are two extremely different wisdoms. They offer and seems like the same thing, but the definition is far different than the similar vocabulary. And we could give examples tonight, couldn't we? About God and Satan offering two types of wisdom on almost every major subject that's taking place in our culture. I mean, God has wisdom on sexuality, so does the devil. See, God has wisdom about, hey, you want to run, your, you want to have a good marriage? God says, this is how you live. You love your wife like Christ loved the church, but there's not a lot of guys who want to pick up their cross in their marriage. It's just not what it is. Most people don't want that. Most women don't want to have a submissive response, especially if their husband isn't a cruciform husband. They're not interested. God says, though, here's how you have a good marriage. Satan says, oh, no, listen. There's another way about going about that. There's a different wisdom that you could have. Listen to so-and-so on the TV. Read their books. There's different, God says, and Satan says, hey, there's two different views of money and how you should use it and how you should deal with it. Parenting, there's two ways to bring up your kids. And Satan has his wisdom about what you should make important in your child's life. Build it around this. He says, listen, this is what they're going to, this is what, and so we borrow from the world, take their values, take their calendar, take their morals, and we say, hey, this is what our kids do. And we just try to tack on God at church and think they're going to survive. God says there's two kinds of wisdom. There's two types of wisdom in church leadership. Market the church, have a concert, put the lights on, do all those things. See, that's how you really get people in the door. There's views of worship. There's views of leadership. There's views of what sports is for, education is for, what your priorities ought to be, what contentment is, what commitment is. And there is a different kind of wisdom outside of God's wisdom. And can I tell you this? It will disorder your love, and it will disorder your life like you can't understand. 
Romans chapter 1, if you'll turn over there. I want to show you, and I chose this text because it's very, very good in the sense that it deals with wisdom, but because it's so severe. And I want you to understand that Romans 1, although 2,000 years old, is a very relevant cultural analysis of 21st century America. Can I tell you from this text, please follow me, that this is where the world's wisdom will take you. And yet we buy into it all the time. Romans 1.14 says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. I know barbarian means you think of something rough and violent, someone create, you know. But a Greek was someone who spoke the lingua of Franca, which would be Greek. That's what everybody spoke. If you didn't speak Greek, you were not in the same level of culture, so you were kind of a lower social class because you didn't speak Greek. They called you a barbarian. I think the next phrase probably is a different way of saying a similar thing. He says, both to the wise... And the unwise. If you spoke Greek and you were immersed in Greek culture, you were considered superior. You had intellectual abilities. You were smart. If you didn't, you were considered what's called ignorant. That's the word foolish. It's not the moron word. It's the word compound not knowing. It's, it, you're ignorant. In other words, if you didn't speak Greek and you know about Greek culture, you didn't do all it, then you were ignorant. You were less than that. And God says, here's the truth. That the gospel, which I consider the wisdom of God, and I'll show you that in a minute, he says, as a gospel believer, an evangelist, a missionary, I'm under obligation to all of these people. So let me tell you this. The first thing I want you to know about worldly wisdom is that everyone who's not a believer needs the gospel to overcome it. You cannot, and this is where I want you to, nicely, I want you to wake up to the truth and reality about your children. The reason why our children don't use God's wisdom and don't live by it is because they don't know it. Because the Bible says that salvation is an exchange of wisdoms. Timothy was told by Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 14, he says, But since you were an infant, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in King Jesus. See, salvation is an exchange of wisdoms. And the Bible says in this text, in Romans, that that's our obligation. We are to give the gospel because lost people don't have wisdom. What does it look like as a lost person? What does a lost person look like when they don't have God's wisdom? That's what the next text is going to say. Verse 18. So let's look at lost people who have not been gospelized, who don't have God's wisdom. Let's look how they think, how they feel, how they act, how they live. Watch. Tell me this isn't 21st century America. For the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness hold down, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, there's an epistemological problem and that is how they know things they turn to they know about god and they refuse to believe it they don't want to submit to his authority so for what can be known about god is plain to them because god has shown it to them in other words creation for his 
invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation. You can work at the sun, the moon, the stars, and you can think they're gods or it's all a big cosmic accident or happened over millions of years by evolution from a big bang, which we don't know where that came from. You can believe all that, but you can say but you're, what you're doing is you're suppressing the truth that there's a creator God who made it all. And it says, for his invisible attributes are perceived and in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For they, although they knew God, see, it's knowing, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Ready? They became empty, futile in their thinking. Now watch the first wisdom word. And their foolish hearts were darkened. So the problem is with lost people and why they need to be evangelized because the wise and the unwise is because they have a heart problem. And their heart problem is, is they don't think right about God and that pushing God out of their life and their thinking has made their hearts foolish. It's darkened them. And what, does that, what happens when you do that? Watch. See, this is key. Claiming to be wise. And our world thinks they are wiser, smarter than God, than Christians in the Bible, because they believe in evolution, because they think it's okay to be abortion, because it's unnatural things that men and women do together. They think all that makes them wise. But the Bible says, claiming to be wise, they become fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now watch, he builds on it, therefore... Because they've foolishly ignored God, rejected him. He gives them up to the lust of their hearts. So what happens to a world and a culture around us? And by the way, I'm going to make some applications. So this is the world we live in. This is the world your teenagers are in. This is the TV we have. This is the books that are out there and the music that we so cavalierly let our kids listen to and ourselves too at times. They dishonor them, their bodies among themselves. They exchange the truth about God for a lie, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, he's going to add to it again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, women exchanging relations, so we have homosexuality, lesbianism, sexual deviancy. Is that not our culture? Men likewise give up natural relations with women, consumed with passion for men committing shameless acts. Again, he's going to say it for the third time. You know why? Because they don't want God. They don't want to know God. They don't want to know anything about him. They don't want to know his word. They're not interested in his wisdom at all. God gave them a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, you say, well, my kids don't do that kind of stuff. Okay, not, not done yet. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. And if you didn't get the first fill word, let me give you the second one. They are full so this isn't a small problem where it's just characteristic on the margins of their life. No, this is the core. People without the gospel, without Christ, have no wisdom. And at the core, this is who they are. They are gossips. See, now we're moving away from the big sexual sins. But don't get me wrong, it's a package deal. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. What? Disobedient to parents. How'd that get in there? Parents asked Paul to put that in there. And then what's the next word right after that? 
foolish. It's just all of these things listed, they are characteristic of a life that possesses no wisdom from God. I mean, the whole thing, just foolishness, completely contrary to the wisdom of God. And we don't have time tonight. You can read chapter 2 at the very beginning. You can, uh, over 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I am going to read chapter 3. Just listen to me. 3.18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, that's, one, that's an alternative wisdom, this world's wisdom, let him become a Listen to this. Let him become a fool that he might become wise. And there are two verbs of being. You change from being wise in the world to be a fool so that you can really be wise. See what he's saying? Now, here's the application I wrote down in my notes. We have to teach ourselves and our kids that it is okay for the world to consider you a fool. It is okay. In fact, you should say this. It's expected. If you know Jesus and you're following the wisdom of God who is Jesus and his cross is countercultural and it is the wisdom of the cross and that's all that the gospel is about and you're living completely different, not odd different, but God different because you follow a completely different wisdom scheme, what should be the result? That the world thinks you're the moron. That's what it ought to be and you shouldn't come home from work thinking that that's unusual or that's some sort of shock or surprise. And we should tell our kids, hey, when you go to school, listen, because you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't think this way and you don't laugh at that and you don't watch that and you're not that way on the inside and you're forgiving and you're kind and you're good to other people. Listen, the world's going to think that you're an idiot. Really, they are. That's what the text says. And he says, that's what the world says, but you got to become a fool so that you can really be wise. And our kids have to be okay with that. But the problem is, is that we don't want that. We want the world to think we're wise. And so constantly, and I read the books, we are constantly capitulating and trying to, now we're moving back. Maybe the gap theory is real. Maybe theistic evolution really is. Maybe Adam and Eve are not really historical figures anymore. And maybe the Noah's flood, maybe that's just an epic way of saying how God dealt with people in sin. And maybe it was more local than it was worldwide and on and on the list goes because we want to be accepted we don't want the world to say that christian creationism is intellectually aberrant it's empty and you have to be a fool to believe that we don't want that we don't want to think oh yeah i don't dress that way i don't look that way i don't have that i gotta have those tats i gotta put those and i gotta do all this stuff why because i don't want to be the one who looks like the fool we don't want it We're not interested in it. Proverbs 9. Proverbs 9 is the chapter that follows the first eight Proverbs. That's pretty good, isn't it? And I say that because this first nine chapters, my son, my son, my son, it's a teaching tool. And there's a conclusion that comes to it. And chapter 9 is the conclusion, I think, of the first nine chapters. And then after that are going to be miscellaneous proverbs of wisdom that you apply to various areas of your life. But I want to have you look at, see, Proverbs 9, like Adam and Eve had a choice. God's wisdom, Satan's wisdom. 1 Corinthians is a choice. You have cross wisdom or you have the world's wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9 lays again out these alternative wisdoms. In Proverbs 9, it's called woman wisdom. 
and then there's woman folly or lady folly, however you want to say it. They both have houses that they build, okay? And in chapter 9 and verse 3, in chapter 9 and verse 14, both of their houses, the house of woman's wisdom and woman folly, they both have built houses on the top of the hill on the highest point of the city. And the reason why the Bible says that is because that's where all the temples and little places of worship were. When you wanted to find a worship place in a various city, you would always go to the highest place and the highest hill, and that was where they were worshipped. So here's the thing. See, whether you're God's wisdom or world's wisdom, it's an act of worship. That's why you're going to see at the last, if we have time tonight, we're going to turn and look at Solomon's life, that the key to Solomon's life, what he was known for, was that he was allowed to build the temple of God, a temple like no other temple, and David wasn't. And his big thing was God gave him supernatural wisdom and he built the temple of worship. And so I'm going to tell you later, see, when you go after God's worship, you'll have God's wisdom. But how does his life end? You know what he does? Right next to God's temple, he builds scores of other temples for all of his pagan wives who turned his heart away from God. And then what happens? The end of his life, he has absolutely no God wisdom. And he's destroyed by it. Destroyed the kingdom for it. Why? Because there's always a choice of whose wisdom that you will live by. And in this text, it's the same one. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She slaughtered her beasts. And if you read the rest of the verses all the way to verse 12, you'll find that this house and this lady of wisdom is a good woman and she's a moral woman and a virtuous woman and she bids all the men to come into her house and she wants to feed them a meal because she wants them to know God's wisdom. But when you get to the next one, and this woman is seeming religious too, she's built her house at the top of the city and she wants you to think that she's really all that good stuff too, just like Satan dresses it up. And she invites all the men in the community into her house, too. But her house is completely different because she's not interested in you doing good. When you come into her house, it's all bad stuff. All bad stuff that's enumerated to the end of the passage where it says her path is the way to hell. That's what it says. I mean, you can't read this text and not know there are two completely antithetical choices. I mean, you're going to have this wisdom or you're this wisdom, And see, that's what we do as pastors, and that's what you do as parents. We're trying to tell our people all the time, see, here's what God says, here's what the world, here's what devil says. And sometimes they look like the houses are built in the same place, that they're actually going for the same goal, and it looks all the same, but the houses are not. They're not. Not at all. 1 Kings 3. There's an inclusio or a bracket or a framework to Solomon's life which was recorded from 1 Kings 3 to 1 Kings 11. Those chapters are clearly written to be biographical about the reign of Solomon who reigned for 40 years. The opening salvo, so to speak, in his life in 1 Kings 3 tells us what he... And this is the point I wanted... I told you I was going to get there at the end. How does wisdom to relate to a well-ordered life Solomon, verse 3, loved the Lord. See that? Underline it and don't forget it. He loved the Lord. That was 
his well-ordered love. God was first. He loved him more than anyone or anything else. And so when God comes to him in his first dream and says, Solomon, what would you want me to give to you? Solomon thinks about it for a moment, and here's what he says, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, God, you have a great people. How can I ever govern them correctly? Here's what I want. Give me a discerning heart. And the Hebrew word means hearing. In other words, God, help me listen to your word and have the ability to judge the affairs of your people righteously. So here's what he says. God, you know what I want more than anything else? Why? Because when you love God, you will love his wisdom. Flip it over. And when you don't love God, you will not love his wisdom. So what did Solomon love more than anything else? God. So when he was asked, what do you want more than anything else? Your wisdom. Give it to me. Give me your wisdom. And it says in verse 12, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. You love me. You want my wisdom. I'll give it to you. And now you can read. I don't have time. Read chapter 4. He had wisdom beyond measure. He had wisdom unsurpassed wisdom of all the people of the East. He was wiser than all other wise men. And they even list the names of some guys who were wise, but he surpassed them. It says everyone in the world, all the kings of the earth, came to hear about the wisdom of Solomon. It said he was blessed. and Solomon had wisdom like nobody else who ever lived. I mean, for chapters and chapters, it talks about his wisdom. And because Solomon loved God, Solomon loved God's wisdom. But there's a framework we're working at. And when you get to the end of his life, all of that changes. Chapter 11 and verse 1. Remember I told you, remember the phrase? Solomon loved the Lord. But now, here's what it reads. 1 Kings 11.1. 1. Now King Solomon, what does he love now? Many foreign, foreign women. Why does it say that? Listen. When you were a king in Israel, before there ever were kings, there was God's wisdom recorded for kings. Here's what God's wisdom for kings is. Read it for yourself, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. It says, here's what kings, wisdom of God for kings is. You do not multiply three things. You don't multiply horses because I don't want you thinking that you can win wars and depend on things like you did when you're in Egypt, and people will think that and they'll want to go back there. So don't ever multiply horses. Solomon had stables and horses, thousands by the thousands, by the end of his life. Secondly, it said, don't multiply wives. Not only because polygamy was not God's design, but because the purpose by having wives was so that you could make treaties with the kings of other countries by marrying their daughters. Three times over these chapters, it says, and Pharaoh's daughter was his wife. And Pharaoh's daughter was his wife. You know why he had a thousand wives and 300 concubines? Why did he have all that? You know why? Because he made treaties with everybody and anybody by marrying their wife. So he thought that by marrying them, they won't come and attack you because your daughter's here. You know what that's called? Worldly wisdom. That somehow that's going to give you security. God says, don't multiply wives because you're not, your security isn't in treaties and marrying other guys' daughters. Your security is in me. In me. And he disobeyed that. And then thirdly, it said, don't multiply gold and silver. I mean, it said that gold and sil silver especially was so popular that 
no one treated it worth anything because there was more silver than there were rocks on the road. It was like silver, rock, same value because there's so much of it. I mean, he had gold. He outlaid gold on everything. I mean, he had talents of gold. I mean, truckloads, we would say. People were trucking in gold like you can't imagine. Now, you think, did Solomon know these three no's? He did. You know why? Because the last thing God said for wisdom for kings was this. I want you to copy Torah, the one that the priests use. I want you to have, and you have to write it with your own, I want you to write out your own personal copy of the Bible, and I want you to set it next to your throne so you never forget with every decision you make, use my wisdom. And what did he do? He ignored all of it. You know what it teaches us? The pursuit of wisdom is a lifelong pursuit. Because you have wisdom today and you follow God's wisdom and you love him and you love his wisdom does not mean that you will love him or his wisdom tomorrow. Because he started out loving God and now he loves foreign women. Why? Because he no longer is wise. A love for worldly women produced a love for worldly wisdom. You know why? Because what you love will determine the wisdom you live by. That's why wisdom is connected to a well-ordered love. Four times in the text, chapter 11, verse 2, 3, 4, 9, it says this, And that love for those women turned his heart away from God. Turned his heart. That's what happened to him. See, his problem wasn't the gold or the horses or the wives, is that he wanted them. See, the problem with Eve wasn't that the fruit was there, is that she wanted it when God said no. You know why? Because they lived by a different kind of wisdom. At the beginning of his life, he wanted wisdom and turned down riches and silver and gold as his request. And God said, because you didn't ask for that, I'm going to give it to you. At the end of his life, he turned down wisdom because he wanted all those other things that first he rejected. It is a complete reversal of his life. And can I tell you, if you don't read the life of Solomon and you aren't scared out of your mind, you're crazy. You know why? Because that ought to scare us because no one is guaranteed that because you love God today and have his wisdom making your decisions today that it's going to stay that way. That's why he said, put the Bible next to the throne. Always keep it. Use that wisdom. We cannot allow ourselves to think that there is not a day, there is not a moment in our lives, no matter what we're doing, that we are not making choices about what we love and the wisdom that we will live by. It is constant. And our children need to know when they look at our lives, what is the reason why you turned down that job and why you're going to move to that other new location or not? Why don't we go on that vacation? Why do we do this? Why don't we buy that car? Why do we live in this house? Because there's a wisdom that goes on in this place. There's a wisdom here, and this is what we see. This is what we believe. This is what God has said. And, and hear me. Everybody else, all the other kings of all the other nations, that Deuteronomy passage, the very first verse says, you're going to want a king like all the other nations. And all the other nations, they multiplied horses, they multiplied women, wives, gold, silver, power. They all did that. See, here's what Israel's king was, the only one who didn't. 
And all the other worlds, I mean, all the other nations would say this, oh, you're foolish. You're foolish. You mean you don't have a standing army? You don't have a huge revenue of gold? You don't have the, what, are you crazy? And God says, yeah, crazy for me. Crazy for me. See, Solomon, he didn't want to be a fool. And so he became one. He was wise, but he became the wrong kind of wise. And it wrecked his life, and God tore away the kingdom. And the rest of his life, he had enemies and troubles and problems. And the only way God didn't take it all the way out of his hand is because he didn't do it because of his father David. That was the only reason. And see, sometimes we have difficulties and problems in our life, and we wonder why this happens, and what, why do my kids think that? Why do they say that? What? You know why? Because we can't get it. We're living by the wrong wisdom, and it can be devastating. False gods produce false wisdom every single time, without exception. So who's the God in your house? Who do you love the most? Because that will determine the wisdom that you and your family live by. Let's pray. Father, help us. We so need, and may we also so desire, a well-ordered love. A love that loves you supremely, others sacrificially, and everything else proportionately. Forgive us because too often we borrow from the world's wisdom and then wonder why our love for God and for his work and for the church in our lives and in our children's lives is so cold. Matthew 24 says in the last days that the love of many will grow cold. And because of that, our lackluster love for you, we find it so easy to be like everybody else, to borrow their wisdom, to make decisions based on what's practical, what's best for ourselves. And then the false gods get into our hearts, and it's only downhill from there. Please help us. Help us to have a well-ordered love that we might love the wisdom that James says comes from above, not that which is from the below, which is evil and satanic. James says. That's what's at stake. Help us to see the seriousness of this wisdom, war, and choice that we make every day. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.